My dad was a musician, amateur musician, and uh, he would play piano around the house. We always had a piano. And I've got some lovely childhood memories of sort of lying on the floor and hearing him play. And my father, he was a merchant seaman, you know, you can imagine, in, and it was Just 1940s like in the war and all that. Always do. time I was born, my father's job was driving a bus, and I lived in a two-up-and-two-down 12-Arnold Grove. Dad uh, was a... Um, he made cakes, so we always had sugar through the war. Uh, she ended up doing a lot of jobs, because he left when I was three. He decided that was enough of that. My dad was the fellow at the family parties who played the piano and knew all the tunes, you know, and everyone would buy him beer. They got these masks from Woolworths, and after the end of the evening, a very hot, sweaty evening, obviously, you know, a lot of people sort of all doing, I don't know, I always imagined doing Charleston, Chicago, it was all that era, with my dad on piano and his brother Jack on trombone. They were in their 20s, you know, and they were a little band, Jim Max Band, it was called. I remember him saying to me, you know, he was quite young, he said, you know, learn the piano, you know, you'll always get invited to parties. That was all that was the big thing about learning the piano, you know. Welcome this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Shin. And I'm Lonnie Pena. Hey, it's the first episode back with Lonnie, not counting our Avengers-style team-up last week. Yeah, that was so much fun. It really was having everyone on at once. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to chime in, listen to the show, please do so. We had a great time. All right. First off, Amazon has already lowered the price on Paul's 1964 Eyes of the Storm book. It is available for $45 now from Amazon, which is $30 off a list and $20 off of what they were selling it for at release. Oh, it's getting really close to my price range, Ed. It's very tempting. I would consider it. I mean, you, you've seen the press. Paul was on CBS this morning. This morning. Well, this morning for us, but a couple weeks ago for you guys. Or at least a week ago. It's up on YouTube, so you can go ahead and find it there if you haven't caught it yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, we're recording this on Paul's birthday. On right? Paul's birthday and on Father's Day. And on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. All your dads out there, by the way. Well, your daughter just took you out to dinner, so. Yum, yum. And I also got cookies from my daughter in L.A. And you're on your way out to visit her in the not-too-distant future. Yes, I'll be listening to the show when it's released in Los Angeles. <laughs> All right. So, second, beyond that, we did get some clarification on the new track, presumably now and then. So they're actually going to AI Paul's voice into Lennon's voice back to George's voice, and then add a little Ringo. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, <laughs> nothing is real, as we've been saying. Right, but it's nothing like that, right? <laughs> Not for this song. We'll see what happens next year. So what does Sean say, though? What, what are they going to end up doing? Well, first off, here is what McCartney himself actually said. We were able to get John's voice 
and make it pure through AI, and then we could mix the record as you would normally do. So, so that was Paul's quote. And, you know, that actually seems clear enough to me, but again, everyone got a little bit, it's that word it, or those letters AI. It, it just confuses everybody. I know. It's, it was all over the talk shows during the week, and everyone was confused. It kind of made me angry. <laughs> so I'm happy that Sean put out some type of clarification. What he is saying is that all we, note the use of the word we there, mm-hmm. all we did was clean the noise from the vocal track. People are completely misunderstanding what occurred. There have always been ways of denoising tracks, but AI just does it better because it learns what the vocal is and is able to very precisely remove everything that is not the vocal. So there you go. That pretty definitively says, okay, here is what is going on with this. Right, and there's not going to be really any other manipulation to his vocals other than denoising it. And then later down on the thread, he got asked what he thought of it, and he said that to him, it came out very good, and he thinks and hopes that we all like it very much. Ah, it's going to be nice. I cannot wait, no matter what you think about releasing a song that should have been released 30 years ago, I'm still excited. It's a Beatles tune. This is at least going to be as much of a Beatles tune as Free as a Bird and Real Love. And, you know, there's still some detractors who say, oh, well, that's not really a Beatles tune, but it's the closest we can get. Yeah, and they're promoting it as the last Beatles song, which is kind of sad. Someone brought up some of the press clippings from post-anthology when Real Love came out, and, you know... They also said that was going to be the last Beatles song. There's actually a quote there from Paul. It's like, nope, we're done. We're locking it all away. We're finished with all the new material. It's not going to happen ever again. It's kind of like the Rolling Stones farewell tour in 1980. It just kept on happening. So hopefully it's not the last song, but you never know. No, I mean, we did talk about that last week. There are still other avenues where they could certainly bring back some stuff off a get back or re-edit some of the material there might even be a really nice medley out of some of the unreleased stuff that could be made out of cleaned up versions of the get back tapes yeah and you you know with all the material that was out there just like the recent concert at that boys school the Stowe School, yeah. Well, you never know. There could be something, something somewhere. No one has found a tape at EMI. It fell behind the cracks, you know, <laughs> and it, it, they'll dig it up one day. Who knows? Well, and who knows what happened in the 70s? Are there outtakes from the Ringo session where you had John, George, and Ringo together? If there were some outtake from that session, Paul goes and slaps some vocals on that, and there's a new Beatles track. Yeah, you never know. And there's that tape that... uh... Alan Williams, the man who gave the Beatles away. We talked about that last week as well. And he also lost the Beatle tape. There were only like three or four acetates of Summertime, which is actually a Lou Walters single, but we'll take Lou Walters' vocal off. Well, that's an AI for you. <laughs> the most interesting thing with the Williams was, as you guys know, you, you heard all this stuff, is the discussion about the Summertime disc, the um, song from Hamburg, where he says, oh, I forgot I meant to bring in that disc for you guys, and I forgot. And he forgot to bring it in because it was a few days later or a few weeks later, he loses it. And so if he remembered to bring it in, if he'd remembered to bring it in, because I think he must have either, he was going to loan it. I don't know whether it's to Ringo. I mean, I think Ringo was the one that was made interested in it. If, he, if he'd remembered it, then it would exist today and it would probably, probably have been on the anthology. Just, you know, we would have heard it. All right. So since today, well, today as we're recording it is Father's Day, we kind of decided let's talk about some of the... Beatles' fathers and sons, I mean, as we know, certainly their fathers, a lot of them don't get nearly the recognition that they probably deserve. And some don't deserve any, depending. <laughs> but they're out there. They, they, they had dads, they had fathers, they had <laughs> they, they did all have biological fathers. And, and one yeah. thing, you know, as we kind of go through this, it's interesting that, you know, we like to think of that era as being one of the traditional family, the, you know, the mother and the father and uh, and the 2.5 children, but not for the Beatles. George is the only one who was fortunate enough to have that through the majority of his, you know, adolescence and growing up. 
Yeah, you never, I never really, you know, thought about it. But yeah, you're right. George was the only one. Uh, I did a quick search uh, just in preparing for the show. In 1940, the divorce rate was two divorces per 1,000 people. And so it, it was happening. It just didn't happen as often. I don't think there was actually any divorces in there. I mean, we know what happened to Alf Lennon. <laughs> yeah. And Richard Starkey also just kind of walked away. I don't think they ever went through a formal divorce. My dad left when I was three. And that's another subject, right? <laughs> Despite all the broken homes, none of them actually were divorces. They were not officially divorced, but yet they had significant others later. So let's start with some of the people that we don't necessarily know that much about. Uh, you know, let's start with Stu Sutcliffe. His father was a civil servant, right? And a Freemason, yeah. And, and, oh, wow. Oh, wow. So he was involved, I guess, to be that. He was obviously highly involved with the community. So what is Freemasonry? Simply put, it's the world's oldest and largest fraternity. It's membership a who's who of world history. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Winston Churchill, Mozart, Davy Crockett, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Houdini, Gerald Ford, Henry Ford, John Wayne, even Colonel Sanders. Was he a musician? Some people say that he was artistic and some people say that he had some musical ability, but... I, we don't really know that much about him. We do know that he was divorced before he got together with Millie Sutcliffe. He was married before, and he got divorced, and then he married Stu's mother, Millie. Okay. And then did they stay married? Apparently so. However... Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> as we will discover, during the war, Charles Sutcliffe uh, joined the Navy. Much like Alf Lennon... He was a seaman. Did he survive? He survived the war, and he worked on ships post-World War II. Once Charles Sutcliffe was discharged, he and Freddie were living very similar lives. He spent all of his time away from home at sea as well. Okay. So he wasn't around. Stuart, okay. There's a long series of stories about how Stuart was the man of the house and how Millie felt very guilty about placing that burden on her son. And where was he? Was he where was he from Ireland or Scotland? Hamilton, South Lancashire, Scotland. Okay. Charles Sutcliffe would die in nineteen sixty six, so he outlived Stu. Yeah, he he got to live long enough to hear about the Beatles fame. If he was in and out of port, I wonder how much he was actually told about that. Maybe. Oh, how much he was told about his his son. About what happened to Stu and the Beatles and the whole thing. The other thing that this explains, certainly we, we read Lewis and, and we always hear about how Millie had just this hatred of the Germans. And she would have nothing to do with Astrid. This kind of makes a little bit more sense if her husband was off at war on a ship fighting the Germans. You can kind of see where her issues might have come from. Yeah. Timing-wise, that was still just in close proximity within 20 years of that event. Yeah, not even. The war went on until almost the mid-40s. Yeah. Did Millie have any other kids? Yeah, Stu has some sisters. Okay. There's the one who wrote the book. The one who kind of sort of believes that John Lennon may have been responsible for Stu's injury, but, I mean, that also may have just been somebody feeding her something. This'll sell, this'll sell. That alleged fight that they had. Yeah, exactly. That is Stuart, and the thing which comes out of that which interests me the most is the fact that Stuart and John kind of had very similar upbringings, although you know Stuart's was with his own family and John's was with his Aunt Mimi. We can mark that as Stuart's father was distant from him, not close. It's always seemed a little bit strange that this you know outgoing, abrasive John Lennon would have become friends with... Stuart Sutcliffe, the picture we have of him at art school is kind of this quiet, studious fellow, you know, really trying to make his art go. 
And I was like, how are these two guys going to get together and become such great buddies? So it's like, well, well, they had something in common. Now we know. It's similar to the same thing we always say about John and Paul. They had both had the issues of their mothers dying very young. Right. Although Julia was still alive when he met Paul. By the time he was in art school, she wasn't. When he met Paul, Julia was still alive, obviously. Right. You know, Paul and Julia have had some connection, but Mary McCartney, I guess John didn't meet her. I don't think she was alive, but that's what Stuart and John had in common, though, was the father was not existent. There was a father, but he was distant, and particularly since he was at sea, that would have tied them together. That explains a lot between the, the, the friendship. All right, so let's move on to Pete Best. We talked about this earlier that uh, we're going to find out about, was he really a Best? <laughs> so Mona Best had two children, and neither one of them were fathered by Johnny Best. How is that? How can that happen? What happened to the father? <laughs> I don't know why the, Pete took the name, to be honest with you. Well, what happened to Pete's real biological father? His father died in World War II. Okay. So he was probably like an infant. Pete Best was born Randolph Peter Scanland on November the 24th, 1941. And he was born in India. British India. British India, yeah. His father was killed in the war. And Mona was to fall in with Johnny Best, who was also overseas. Well, I guess he, he adopted the kids then. Rogue is still a best, and we know that Johnny Best never adopted him, although that may just be because it's all a lie and, and they weren't telling him at the time. <laughs> this is your kid. Well, you didn't have too many people really interested in keeping paperwork back then, I guess. As I've mentioned to John on several occasions, you know, I wonder when Rogue actually found out that his dad wasn't Johnny Best. <laughs> Johnny, what a name though, Johnny Best. That sounds like a rock and roll name. <laughs> it also sounds like a professional boxer. Which he was, right? Which he was. I mean, you know. He was in Liverpool, right? Boxing in yeah, Liverpool. He was, he was boxing in Liverpool and then he also boxed uh, during his time in the force. Now, was he around with for Pete when Pete was growing up? Yeah. He was around. I mean, you know that picture we found or we didn't find but that was found uh, a year or two back of them at the house on the other side of the casbah john and paul yeah both rogue and pete have confirmed their favorite thing about that photo is you can see johnny best golf clubs in the shot oh okay <laughs> so you know johnny best was around you know mona was a working woman she was a school teacher and she had spent some time working for the red cross they had the cash ball. That was a coffee. And when they moved back to Liverpool, Mona was picky about the house she wanted. You know, she she wanted a house at a distance. She wanted a house of a certain size. And it's only because of Johnny Best that she could afford to find such a place. So I mean, we can, to some extent, thank Johnny Best for really the very early days of the Beatles. Certainly, the mid to late quarrymen because had they not had that house had they not been able to have the room to open up this club maybe the beatles wouldn't have happened the casbah was their hangout in the early days yeah. and had they not had johnny best's money the bests that is they would have never been able to afford that house and they never would have been able to open up that club until the cavern really became their home it's like well what are we going to do and you say Johnny Best was a um, like a boxer. He was a boxer, and then he he became a boxing promoter. And his family was part owner of the Liverpool Stadium. Oh, is that like a soccer field, or or was that a, a venue? It's a venue. It was where, amongst other things, boxing matches went on. Well, that's a major deal in Liverpool. Well, exactly. So yeah. So I could see the attractiveness for John and Paul to have Pete on drums to some degree. You know, hey, this guy has a he's kind of he got a little club here and 
and they own the Liverpool Stadium. I could see the gut punch now to Pete to some degree. Again, it fills in the story a little bit. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know about that Liverpool Stadium and the connection with the best family. It's crazy. We know a little bit more about Brian and Harry Epstein. Yeah. Harry was the one who had started the NEMS chain, and right. Uh, right. he also specifically opened the one which would become the record store and installed Brian as the man in charge yeah. when Rada and everything else didn't work out for Brian. When it came to his son's ambitions, Epstein's father, Harry, drew the line at dress designing. After his disastrous school career, the young Brian went into the family business. He overcame his initial reluctance and found an outlet for his artistic aspirations in an enthusiasm for the design of furniture and the way it should be displayed. Epstein's interest in furniture retail soon began to wane. He was drawn to Liverpool's thriving playhouse and he became friendly with the actors and developed a fantasy that he could be an actor himself. With their help, he successfully applied to RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, Britain's most prestigious drama school. However, he was to fare no better as a drama student than he had in the army or at school. To his bitter disappointment, he failed to stay the course and left at the end of the first year. Shamefully, he again returned to the family business. His parents' misgivings about his theatrical ambitions were confirmed. As much in exasperation as encouragement, Harry Epstein, responding to his son's interest in classical music, opened a record department in his new store in the centre of Liverpool and put Brian in charge. Yeah, they, they certainly were well-to-do. Again, without that, the Beatles wouldn't have not just the Brian connection, but the record connection, the ability to go in and listen to all these different records and figure out what they wanted their sound to be like. Yeah, Brian would have bound to have seen the Beatles, you know, in and out of his store at the time before he met them. That's the joke. Those scruffy kids are back playing all our records. Yeah, let's kick them out of here. Brian was writing a column for Bill Harry's paper, and even before he went down, the Beatles' top poll issue was sitting on the counter at NIMS. So yeah. I don't believe that Brian had absolutely no knowledge. He may not have been paying that much attention, but it's like, I know who these guys are. At the very least, when he went down in the cavern, it's like, oh, it's those guys. Yeah, other than, you know, the Raymond Jones walked into the store asking. He was a regular at the cavern, and Bob Wooler and the Beatles were saying, request this Tony Sheridan record because we're on it. Epstein, his interest was high already to find out what this Beatle thing was. That's Mercy Beat. Right. And we had to order 25 as a minimum. We had to import it from Germany. And so Brian did a handwritten notice in the window and it said Beatles record available here. And within um, an hour or so, it had sold out. All the, the rest, the other 24 had gone. So Brian says, let's go and have lunch, and, but we'll drop in the cavern and see this band. The ironic thing on the other side, which is really just kind of sad, particularly when we talk about Queenie, I mean, we know that Brian was what lit Queenie's eyes up. Brian was her favorite. That was her boy. But Harry died just a month before Brian's overdose. They both died in 67? Within a month, yes. Oh my goodness. That is terrible. That is tragic. Poor Queenie. She lost her husband and she lost her favorite son. That just had to be devastating to her. Marry both of them at the same time. And, you know, that's another reason to think that Brian wouldn't have done that to his mother. No. It probably almost certainly was an accidental overdose. He he didn't commit suicide. I would say not. If it were a little bit later, you could make that statement. Because Queenie was just in agony over losing her husband. It's like, oh. When did Queenie pass away? Yeah, she lived all the way to 1996. She wow. lived to 82 years of age. Great. Did she ever remarry? I wonder. I don't think so. There's like two interviews with Queenie. One from the Tony Barrow, the All You Need Is Love thing. And then there was one from like early in the 90s. With business. That the first time we met the Beatles, they were playing in um, Southport. And um, Brian was very insistent that we should go over. And uh, I'd never been to a rock and roll concert before, and I asked him what I should wear. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, look young. 
She lived a good long life, but that was 30 years of uh, regret to a certain extent, I would say. We do have that interview, uh, although the parody version in the Ruddles is probably a little bit more famous than the actual comedian interview. <laughs> I need to go back and watch that. It's been a while. As a child, Leggy's mother never allowed him to play with the other little boys. His father was so snobby, he wore swimming trunks in the bath to stop him looking down on the unemployed. But it was here, in Liverpool, that... But it was in Liverpool that we spoke with Leggy's mother, Mrs Iris Mountbatten. Um, well, he told me that he'd uh, been to see these young men in a dark cellar. Yes. He was always very interested in young men. Oh, yes. Youth clubs, Boy Scouts, that sort of thing. Yes, yes. But um, these, he said, were different. In what way? Well, um, the hair and uh, the presents, the music. He liked it? No, he hated it. Well, what did he like? Well, um, uh, the trousers. What about their trousers? Well, they were, uh, they were very, um, tight. Tight? Yes, you could see quite clearly. Oh, I see. Everything. Outlines. Clear as day. Yes, yes, thank you. Yes. So, tight trousers and Nothing noise. left to the imagination. Yes, thank you. One more before we actually start talking about the Beatles and their families themselves. George Martin, uh, his family did actually stay together that did not pass down to george martin himself he's another one who did actually get divorced yeah it was a weird one too to some extent he got married he had two kids and then i mean the reason that he really went for the parlophone gig well other than the fact that they said we're interested in you and he wanted a, a job in the music business but was because he needed the money to buy a house for his first wife but then what happened at the gig? He started in with the secretary, the lovely Judy. The mother of Giles. So George Martin has two kids by his first wife and two kids by his second wife. It wasn't a good divorce, the split from his first wife. It was a really bad situation. Again, roundabout way, that is the reason why we have the Beatles and George Martin together. If you remember from Lewis and... Mark was really the first to discover that no one else really wanted this group that they only wanted for the publishing. Right. Beachwood wanted to publish some of John and Paul's songs, and Brian would only let that happen if they got to record. Right. So it's like, okay, here, I don't like the fact that you're stooping the secretary, so you get to do this, George. <laughs> Give it to George. That, once again, also fills in some blanks. The first Love Me Do session, George didn't even want to hang out in the studio. He, he just gave it to Ron Richards and said, hey, you deal with these guys. And it's only when Ron said, well, wait a minute, they kind of got something. He went and retrieved George and said, yeah, you should listen to this. <laughs> yeah, you should really. So we have to thank Ron Richards. Oh, well, we have to thank him for that. And we have to thank the fact that they forced the Beatles on George Martin. I mean, as we know, George Martin had turned them down. It's just amazing how the domino effect happens here. <laughs> and it all worked out. It's just like a perfect, the planets were had to be aligned just perfectly for the Beatles to happen. And there was a lot of variables that had to be in place. Yeah, you change, you change you know? one, one thing, especially one little thing that's, it's not, it's not going to happen, or, or it's certainly not going to happen in the same way. Right. So don't go back. Time travelers out there, do not go back and <laughs> there touch There is a butterfly anything. effect to be had. <laughs> the butterfly effect is very sensitive, okay? <laughs> His dad was a woodworker, but he was also continually in some poverty. I mean, George Martin did not grow up in a, even a middle-class family. When he got the job at a polyphone. He seemed like he was a pretty wealthy person, the way he spoke and everything. I also have a vivid memory of a very, very cold winter, and my feet were freezing, and he knew this, and we didn't have a hot water bottle. So he got an old can, which used to hold petrol or oil, and cleaned it out and filled it with hot water, wrapped it in towels, 
and put it by my feet at the bottom of my bed to give me warm feet. That's one of the memories I have of my dad. He raised himself up. He actually learned that accent. Okay. His parents, despite everything, supported his musical ambitions when he was young. He had formed a group in his teenage years, and his father actually went out and made some music stands with the woodwork. Yeah. And then, of course, that would all come to an end with the war. But he was very supportive of George. And did his father live a long time, or was he... Uh... I think his father passed in the 60s. Passed in the 60s, okay. On to the Beatles themselves. Oh, okay, I thought we were done with it. No, wait a minute. <laughs> we have to... We still got at least those four guys. We got uh, the four guys. The reason why we're here, folks. John had a bunch of different father figures through the years. Oh, I know. That's crazy. And who did we start with? <laughs> Certainly his biological father. There's Alf. Well, Alf. We know a lot about Alf. I really hope that someday we find out exactly what happened on that black pulse. That's still kind of a black box, pardon the pun. Maybe in a few years, we'll have an AI go back and put all the pieces together. Yeah, the AI can time travel <laughs> because it's a computer that's not that can't I- interfere with anything. Right, right. The story, the story that we kind of keep hearing about and everyone wants to make this big traumatic thing in John Lennon's life. And it certainly probably was traumatic, but there is no way that Alf was going to run away with John. No. Not at all. Certainly not steal him away on a boat. He may have been trying to take John and place him without anybody else's knowledge, without Julia's knowledge and without Mimi's knowledge, with some friends of his. But the story which everyone says, we're going to go away and you have to decide between me and mummy. It's like, I don't know, know how much I quite believe that. Yeah, and even if he did, you know, he probably would be back. If Alf was the kind of person that needed to be doing his own thing, he may have only been gone for a couple of years and then came back and give John back to uh, to Julia. Mimi would have tracked that man down to the ends of the <laughs> earth. I could see that. Yeah. You know, one step off of English shores, she's got a little spidey sense tingling. <laughs> Mimi will find you. You don't need any... <laughs> She's the apple tag of the day. <laughs> Mimi will find you and get her John back. They obviously, they didn't have a relationship, but didn't Alf come back after the Beatles? The big thing, he was in 64. And again, there's some different stories about what happened there. We know that he was a dishwasher. Some places claim that Alf went to the press, and some places claim that the press found Alf. He recorded a record, right? That's my life, that's my love, and my home. It started in Liverpool, where I was born. No father to advise me, but I carried on. The first time I saw the sea, I just knew this had to be. That's my life, that's my love, and my home. That's crazy. He and John, while I won't say close, they certainly had a relationship from 1964 to 1970. Yeah. So that was probably the last time they saw each other was 1970. Well, 1970 is the last time that they saw each other. Yes. But well, how long did Alf live? He lived to like uh, 76, 77. Okay. Another one of those weird little coincidences. Alf would die within... A couple of months of when Jim McCartney died. John had already retired from music at that point. John was already off and Sean was born. Alf was around for a significant chunk of the Beatles, certainly the Beatles' fame. We know that he, uh, amongst other, I mean, John was to actually buy him a house. So they had a connection. It may not have been a close connection. Alf was at the Magical Mystery Tour party. Okay. Well, but then he passed when Alf passed, and then that was uh, around the same time you said as Jim McCartney passed. The thing about Alf is that Alf, in 1969, 1970, married himself a young Beatle fan. So John has two half-brothers. Another kind of kind of interesting, kind of amusing, kind of sad thing is 
The only person I can think of who had quite as many father figures as John did is Julian. (laughs) (laughs) True. Julian also would have about four or five different father figures throughout his life, including his natural father, including John. Right, but right. Cynthia was married a number of times. You got to count Paul in there as a father figure to Julian as well. well that's Uncle Paul. Oh, okay. but yeah, but you're right. Some somewhat. The story about Alf and Magical Mystery Tour was uh, he didn't realize until uh, John called him right before the party that it was a costume party. <laughs> So Alf went out and the garbage guy was outside and paid the garbage guy for his coveralls. He didn't wash them. He put them on and came to the party in in, in the dirty garbage bin's coveralls. The last time that John would see Alf was uh, on his birthday in 1970 while he was recording Plastic Ono Band. Okay. I was at Tittenhurst then. John went on a little tirade and threatened to... uh, take care of Alf and dump him at the bottom of the ocean so far that no one would ever find his body. (laughs) I mean, you know, he he was just out of primal and everything was kind of raw and kind of up at the surface, but it's like, that's not good, John. No, but he got it off his chest though. (laughs) While they did not see each other over the ensuing years, they did apparently have some communication. Yeah. Freddie going off and marrying a Beatle fan. That must have just pissed John off. Something oh, terrible. You know? I mean, I can't even imagine. Father figure yeah. number two for John Lennon. For John. And Who probably is it? the one that, that was the most <laughs> like a father to John. It's his Uncle George, Aunt Mimi's husband. Oh, yeah. That was during his years, his what, teen, pre-teens, early teens. Uncle George died in 1955, so John would have been oh, 14 or 15. 14, yeah. He would have been 15 October of 55. Yeah, so a couple of months before he turned 15. I mean, again, you, you look at that. John's beloved uncle and his mom would die just so close to each other. Yeah, because his mom died in 57, right? Okay, so, well, okay, maybe not that close, but that's still... But still two years, yeah, that's, that's still on the... It's on the close side, yeah. Yeah, and as a teenager, that hits hard, that lose the father figure, Uncle George, and then the mother two years later. He was still a teenager. He was 16, 17. Going through all the things teenagers go through, Uncle George is the one who would allow John's rebellious side to come out, and, and apparently that's where John got a lot of his humor from. yeah. What was his name? George Smith? George Too Good Smith. What kind of middle name Too Good is, I don't know, but that was his middle name. Then he passed away. That would have been a very traumatic thing for John. The The weird thing about that is it's looking more and more like George Smith and Mimi's marriage was kind of a sham. A sham in as much as the story now is that Mimi never actually consummated her marriage to George. Okay. Was there a reason? <laughs> Good question. Well, they were married for how long? Well, they never <laughs> had kids. Maybe never had kids. Well, if they never had sex, they never would have had kids. <laughs> that makes sense now. It's entirely possible the reason they got married, and apparently a lot of people got married at the start of the war just so they would have an heir. Oh, Okay. They would have someone that would have their name and would then at least carry their memory and uh, move things forward. To some extent, out of convenience, I guess. George Smith actually went after Mimi for a long time. It was a year or two, and, you know, she just didn't want nothing to do with him. But they lived in the same house. This was before. I mean, they weren't married yet. Okay, but when they got married, they were in the same house. The answer to this question depends upon whether we believe one of the next gentlemen we're going to be speaking of here. Oh, who was that? Post-George, we know that Mimi was to bring borders into Mendips. Right, to help pay. Pay the rent and also do some of the things around the house. And one of those boarders was a fellow by the name of Michael Fishwick. Fishwick. What a name is that? John would call him Fishy. 
fishy. <laughs> so yeah, Fishwick was a student at the university and something we have learned in recent years, he was Mimi's lover. So he was much younger too. Oh, he was much younger. <laughs> As maybe 21, 22. This story comes through John's half-sister, Julia. Okay. She has a relationship with Fishwick, who, at least as of a year or two ago, was still alive. He's in his 90s. And what Fishwick revealed was that the first time they had sex was the first time Mimi had sex. (laughs) Okay. Why are you going to lie about something like that? Right, right. That is so, crazy, though. That is a it, crazy... It's, it's it's just a real crazy story. So so Fishwick, at least to me, counts as father figure number three. He did have a relationship with John as well. He could relate to him as an older brother type. <laughs> Except I'm doing your aunt, so... <laughs> I wonder... Well, I guess John had to realize that. He was old enough. He had to have known what was going on. Yeah, that was a small house, by the way. I've been to... To that house. Uh, so, yeah. And, you know, and it's John, small. John had to have known what was going on, but okay. I mean, you know, that counts a little bit less as a father figure, but I mean, still, Fishwick was one of the people who was responsible for John getting a harmonica. Okay. Mimi said, you can only keep it if you can learn a song on it by the end of the day, and John did. John did. Yeah. There's father figure number three. Is that three? One, two, three. Okay. There's more, right? One more if we don't count Yoko. I mean, Yoko counts as a father figure. Mother and father. Number four, Twitchy. That's what I'm going to say. Did we forget Twitchy? That's Julia's husband or whatever they were. (laughs) Julia's boyfriend, the man that Julia lived with, the father of Julia's children. Including Julia, the sister. Uh, Julia and Jackie are the two daughters that came through. But she was not divorced from Alf. They were technically living in sin. Why did they call him Twitchy? Was he always twitching or something? Well, John's the one who called him Twitchy. John. <laughs> that was his nickname. He had a tick. He had a little facial tick. I could hear John say that behind his back and maybe even in front of his. <laughs> Probably to his face. You know, yeah. John. Well, what was his real name? John Dykins. John Dykins. Okay. Which is also probably another reason why John Lennon would call him something other than John. Yeah. What kind of father figure was he to John? John didn't spend much time with Julia. When John was over at the house, Twitchy would have at least been accepting of John being there. Okay. Then there's stories that he would let John take dips into his tip jar. John would get pocket money from him. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say that he was parental to John. He was certainly someone who uh, would be taking care of him on occasion. So this is John not living with us. He's coming in and out. So, you know, I'll give him a little token. He at least gets some mention. And Julia and Jackie have both said that he was a good father to them. The Beatle thing is, you know, John had to have been dressing up like Twitchy in Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, why is that? Because the little <laughs> thin mustache and the slick back hair. Okay. The, the margarine hair, as they like to call it. Yeah. I guess it's kind of a stereotype, but it that's a little yeah. bit too close. There's that guy from Sparks. What's it? Paul McCartney imitating on the <laughs> yeah, keyboard. Yeah, that's, that is true as well. But, uh, <laughs> but that's you know, not twitchy. <laughs> that's not twitchy. I would, again, uh, if I were to make a guess, I would say, yeah, that was John paying tribute to Twitchy, at least slightly. Okay, I'll go with that. If you ask John at that time, okay, you're going to play a waiter. Oh, okay, I get to be twitchy. And then, I mean, you know, to a certain extent, we can say that Brian was kind of a father figure to John. Well, yeah, that's true. So that's John Lennon. So we got, what, one, two, three, four at least. Yeah, that was significant coverage for John there. A bunch of different father figures. Yeah. This is really a perfect example of the extended family. The, the Hillary Clinton, it takes a village thing. His natural parents, his aunties, and then kind of all these other people that were in part responsible for raising John. Yeah, it's, uh, people were involved. But I think mainly it was his Aunt Mimi, though. It was Julia, it was Aunt Mimi, and then to a lesser extent, the rest of the aunties. Yeah. The whole family of girls were all pretty close. But it's still kind of maybe a little bit less common for the 1940s. 
Yeah. No, certainly. It's more something that you think about when you think about families these days. Yeah. When you know, particularly separated families. Yeah. You bring in all these other people to assist in the raising of the children. Yeah. No, true. I don't disagree with that. Next up, Ringo. What's our boy, Mr. Richard Starkey? How was his upbringing? Richard Starkey Sr. was together with Ringo's mom, and you know they had the baby. But at some point during the war, he just sort of disappeared. He just took off. Well, that's not good. He abandoned his family. Never to be seen again? Never to be seen again. I mean, Ringo says that he's only ever seen his biological father about two or three times from youth, and he barely remembers ever actually seeing him. Okay, so he was not around at all then. Now, what's fortunate is that Ringo's mom was to find somebody. Yeah. You know, Ringo would have a father, Harry Graves. Oh, Harry, yeah. And Harry uh, was very instrumental with Harry was very instrumental for a lot of things. That One of the things that people don't necessarily know is that Harry Graves was Jewish. Well, that's news to me. <laughs> that doesn't make Ringo Jewish, but that certainly means that he had had and probably has familiarity with the traditions. Yeah. You know, whatever the Beatles may have done with Brian in regards to Jewish holy days and such wouldn't have been strange to Ringo. Right. He would have understood and respected that part of it. Harry Graves was responsible for Ringo's first kit. He had some connections and was able to buy a used kit and Lewis and again tells some stories about Harry getting the pieces and getting the kit home to Ringo. Yeah. I mean, he could have bought him a trumpet. He could have bought him a banjo, but he bought him a drum kit. Well, because that's what Ringo wanted. This was after Ringo had had his time. I mean, you know, we've all heard those stories when he was laid up with the tuberculosis and in hospital and they, they'd come around and he would only play if they let him play the drum. Right. And so, you know, he turned into one of those kids. He was beating on everything. And then it may have just been <laughs> Harry was like, stop it. Okay, I'll get you a real kid. And then to allow him to play it in practice, you know, that's a feat in itself. <laughs> Even if it's outside, that's kind of a small house. Right. <laughs> you have to be a special parent to have your son as a drummer <laughs> to practice day in and day out. Harry was apparently a very good father to Ringo. Well, that's good. What Ringo said was that he learned gentleness from Harry. Well, that's nice. And Harry lived uh, quite a while, didn't he? We have film footage of Harry. Yeah. Toward the very end of Harry's life, Ringo, on the first All-Star tour, went back to Liverpool. They did a special, at that time, the Disney Channel. The Disney Channel on cable, not Disney+. Plus. I wish Disney Plus would pick all of those back up and put them in streaming. Yeah, the old cable Disney. I have my copy of it, but... That'd be Disney Retro. That's, that's another monthly fee. <laughs> they go around all the old places in Liverpool, and it is... Harry and I think it was Jason. I don't think it was Zach that was with him and Ringo. I mean, you know, they actually walk around, they go to all the old houses, they show off all the old places that they used to go to in Liverpool. Yeah, that's awesome. What was that back in the 80s or early 90s? The first All Star tour. Okay, so 89 then. This is great. It's uh, really quiet this morning. And, uh, if you look over the road now, you'll see the Empress Pub, which is on the top of Admiral Grove, where I live, where we're going down. It happens to be now the John, Paul, George and Ringo Pub. <laughs> and if you look at my album, Sentimental Journey, you'll see I have this on the cover. And uh, you'll see my mum and my auntie and everyone, we put photographs of them in the window. And you were in it too. Yeah, <laughs> Okay, well, let's cross over. And this is Admiral Grove, where I lived from when I was five to when I was uh, 22. I remember when I was five, when we moved from over the road where we'll go later. We didn't have a bathroom. Yeah. We used to have to go to Stebble Street Baths if you want to bath. But when I was a kid, we used to either get Elsie with bathroom in the sink, or then we just had one of those big uh, aluminum baths that we set up in front of the fire. Uh, all this, this side was a big blank wall. This is all new. 
when I was here. And they seem to have lost all the houses down there. Yeah, how are you doing? <laughs> and it's really done up nice. Look at this. Wow. So I spent, and we still have the victory sign. That was from when the war was over. The V is over there for victory. We had a big street party here for all the kids. This, uh, this house is um, probably 20 foot square. And when I was 21, we had 80 people in here. <laughs> we had a great birthday. Has Ringo suggested you should stop work as a Liverpool Corporation painter? He certainly has, but I don't want to move. I like my job and I like the people I work with. They've been really wonderful to me. Has Ringo's affluence made any difference to you at all? No, not the way. I'm, I'm happy for him, like, that uh, what he's doing, like, he's got security for the rest of his life. And we're quite happy about it, the wife and I. Mrs. Bravestock, does Ringo want to move house? I don't really think so. He's asked us to have another house, but we're quite happy. And the neighbours and everybody's very good and proud that the boys have got to where they are. Will the neighbours not become envious of all the wealth that's been accumulated by the Beatles? No, not the neighbours around here. They're all very good and all quite proud. Look at this, Harry. They've all got phones now. I think we had the phone like the last six months we lived here. I remember the first phone call. You remember the first phone call I got here? Some fan called. I didn't know, and the, the operator said, uh, collect call. I said, any call. You know, fine, thank you. And uh, so I'm talking to this girl. And then, you know, we're rapping in a way, oh, I love you, and I'm a big fan. So, oh, isn't that nice? You know, really enthused in those early days. And uh, then she said, and, you know, it's just so great for you to pay for this call. And I just went, Put <laughs> the phone down. Harry was to die not too long after that. You can see the care and love that Ringo had for Harry as you see them walking around and, and you see Harry at the show and it's like, oh, wow, you know, he knows. And I mean, we also have the stuff with them from the Beatle years. I mean, you know, there were various news stories and such. Right. And Harry's always very proud of what Richie was doing. He was a good man for Ringo. Good father. Especially after the other Richard Starkey ran off. I guess the thing that Ringo would get out of his biological dad is the Parkin grandmother. Okay. You know, th that's the one who would force him to become right-handed because left-handers were the devil's work. She had voodoo, something or another. <laughs> she thought being left-handed was a sign <laughs> of the devil. Yeah. That's crazy. I would have liked to have met her. You know? <laughs> she was one of those Louisiana-style gypsy queens, apparently. She knew. She had a premonition that he was going to play, like, Strawberry Fields, and he had to do it a certain method, and, and Rain had to be a certain method. She had <laughs> a premonition. That's where it all comes from. Yeah. Voodoo. <laughs> that is what Ringo got from his biological father, is his crazy grandmother who... <laughs> Forced him to become a right-hander. Well, and again, it all has to fall into place. The planets have to align, and that's part of it. So on to George. Now, George's parents were to actually stay together. And if you read his sister's book, uh, you know, my brother's band, The Beatles, a lot of what George is came from the way that he was raised. She talks about the spirituality and not necessarily the religious overtones, but, you know, the sense of right and wrong and the sense of just there being these cycles in the universe all came from his parents. And they were very grounded, it sounds like, and very, I don't know, caring people, ethical. And George, he took a lot of that from his parents. Harold was, as we know, a bus driver. George looked a lot like him. Not as much as George and Danny. The weird thing is, the one that we know looks a whole lot like George is his maternal grandfather. I know. It's those pictures somewhere, right? From the 1800s. <laughs> he was in the police force, and you look at, the, there's like a group photo of... Uh, these policemen in the middle of, there's a very Sergeant Pepper looking George Harrison. There's a George Harrison with the sunken cheeks, the long face. There's a reason why Danny looks so much like George. Yeah, there's some, that's uh, some thick blood there. <laughs> <laughs> Harold, where was he from? Is he Scotland? England? Ireland? Somewhere in England. Hey, wait a minute, isn't that an album? <laughs> After George's mom died... 
the elder Louise passed, I think Harry actually went to live with George. Okay. We saw Harold, didn't we see him? And in- we have those great photos that when George went to the White House and visited Ford. That's right. Harold was there. <laughs> you got Billy Preston with his big, huge afro, and then you have his, his dad, Harry, with the shoulder-length hair. <laughs> he looks like a hippie, but it's all silver shoulder-length hair. Oh, uh, how long did he live? He didn't live through the eighties, though. Did I don't think he did. May of nineteen seventy-eight. Age sixty-eight. Between Alf, Jim, and Harold, they were all in the late 70s there. Within a four- or five-year period, but that's not that uncommon because a lifetime of smoking and drinking, again, it makes you realize just kind of how young George's mom was, Louise Elder was when she passed. Yeah. The other thing is, you look at those photos from 1970, even as the dementia was coming on, it's like... You know, she looks like someone 80 or 90 these days. Well, George's dad, Harold, was pretty cool dad, sounds like. He was a very cool guy, and, and uh, Paul McCartney has a wonderful story. The form of corporal punishment at the time was caning. They would take a cane out, and they would slap it across the hands or the or the wrists. We might have, like, uh, tight trousers and Ted hairdos, and so that pointed you out as somebody as a troublemaker. So George got done once, and the uh, teacher missed him and got him here. Whack. So he, he had a couple of big wheels came up here, you know, those rash things. And he went home, and he's having his tea with his dad, and they're all chatting about how he went at school. And his dad says, what's that? And he saw these things, and George told him, you know, the teacher did it. So the next day, they were in class, and uh, somebody popped their head around, popped their head around this, the door, you know, the class. Um, Mr. Uh, whoever the teacher was who'd came, George, come out there for a moment, please. And he came out. And uh, it was George's dad there. He said, did you do that to my son across the first? I said, yes, I did. He went, whack. <laughs> right there. And what happened after that? Oh, he was a hero. He was, <laughs> he was just the school hero then, George's dad. That was it, you know. But uh, I used to tell my dad, you know, I got caned. He said, well, you probably did something wrong. <laughs> Paul was like, that was the day that I knew that George's dad was really the coolest. Yeah, that is awesome. That's the Harry Harrison story. He qualifies as the cool one in this bunch, I think. Although Jim Mack isn't far behind. Yeah, that's true. We haven't got there yet. There's Harold. We don't have much else to say. He he was the one that was there for the whole time, and we know that he advised George on purchasing the house. And, again, that would kind of be reflected in, although, you know, George and Patty never had kids. Uh, George and Olivia certainly had Danny, and... And George was apparently a very good dad to Danny. Well, you know what, all the Harold. Well, I don't know about all, but certainly some of it. It's part of the universe, I'm telling you. All right, so we are on to Jim McCartney. So Paul's a junior. James Paul McCartney. Jim Mack was born in 1902. He was 68 in 1970. That's crazy. And we always knew that Jim Mack was... A bachelor for a very long time. And if you want to know the story of how Paul's mother and father got together, I would say go and listen to the Days in Their Lives podcast. We've had the fellow behind it on before, and there's a whole episode on the night that Jim and Mary would get together. I tell you what, it's worth the listen. It's a very well-produced, the whole dramatics, the sound effects, everything. is. It, it gives you a visual as if it were a stage play. If you didn't know it was the truth, you wouldn't believe it. Mary Moen was, she was a boarder and she was invited to this McCartney family party. And it happened to be one of the nights that bombs would fall in Liverpool. The whole clan would get caught in the bunker in the basement. It's like an Armageddon movie. It's like a sci-fi movie. You're having a party and then all hell breaks loose. And then they hear the sirens go off and so they all have to go down in the basement. But... It was because of that that Jim and Mary would get together. Hence, we would get Paul. We know most of Paul's stories. Uh, Jim was also a very good dad. Jim was musical. Jim was the one who actually got Paul going down the road of music. Jim Mack, what, jazz band in the 20s when he was a young man. One thing I didn't know about Jim Mack is he was deaf in one ear. So he was like Brian Wilson. He only had one ear. At the age of 10, young Jim had fallen off a wall and busted one of his eardrums. 
Okay, so you have to be really attentive to sounds. If you only have one ear, you have to make the best of it. So attentive to sounds. and Again, look at Brian Wilson. So it's obvious that Paul still very much loved his dad and looked up to the memory of everything that Jim Mack does. You don't hear Paul ever talking about anything without him bringing up his dad for one reason or another. Working at the Cotton Exchange, being a volunteer fireman, certainly all of the musically related stuff. He made a, a humongous impression on Paul and his brother. There's always the question of why didn't Paul decide to go to his funeral? But we, we also kind of know that that's kind of just the way Paul is. Yeah, you said he passed away in 76? In addition to Jimmy, that's part of the reason why they delayed the American start of the Wings Over America tour. Okay, yeah. You know, he died in that little interregnum there. Yeah. They probably wouldn't have delayed it had Jimmy not broken his hand, but Mike will talk of the fact that Paul did not come home for the burial. I certainly understand that. Some people are just uncomfortable with situations like that. Yeah, as we know, when, when Lennon you know, was murdered, and the comments that Paul had made, he was very uncomfortable about everything, and you know, he said it's a drag. That's how he, I guess, reacts to different things. All right, so I guess we're not going to have much time to talk about the kids. I will say that really Paul and Heather seem to have very good relationship, one that he wouldn't necessarily have had to have with Linda's daughter. But he adopted her, though, right? He did adopt her, yes. He legally adopted so that's his daughter. If I were to point to one thing as far as a familial relationship, it's the way that Paul would accept Heather into his family. Right, without a hesitation. And he seems to have a good relationship with Beatrice. Yeah, I mean, I see there's pictures that float around now and then. You know, she's now a teenager, I guess. Whether it is Beatrice's choice or Paul and the other Heather's choice, <laughs> they have decided to try and keep her out of the spotlight as much yeah. as possible. She's like 20 now. She should be an adult here any minute now. Any minute. As I think it's happening right now. You want to pick one relationship as far as a child relationship, and, and then we'll close things out because, well, we've been here yeah. for Well, I got to say Danny and his father, I mean, they were so close, uh, Danny uh, and George. I love those stories, you know, the stories that, that Danny didn't want to, but he joined the ROTC because that was his only way to rebel against George. Right. right. Talk about a really cool dad. And there's photographs of Danny when he was young in the studio. Everything he took from his father, he's, he's certainly passing it on with his music and his whole character now. I also love his stories that he and his friends would come over and would just go out to the garden and, and George would be like this Jedi master. Yeah. <laughs> Padwan's all around his feet. Right. So you just got to love that. So that that's an excellent example of uh, father-son. Julian may have his issues. Sean certainly doesn't. I mean, Sean, unfortunately, just didn't have the time with John. Paul's son, James, seems to have a real good relationship with Paul, at least now. You know, they've had their ups and downs. Right, right. And then Ringo and his kids. There's, there's no doubt that Zach and Jason are both... Pretty close to Ringo. Ringo is now a great-grandfather. So is Paul, great-grandfather. And Paul's not a great-grandfather yet. Not yet. He's a grandfather. He's not a great-grandfather. Oh, that's I mean, right. He has a bunch of grandkids. So He's like a bunch of grandkids. No. 18, 20, something like that. <laughs> now, there's the one who looks like a cross between a young Elvis and a young Paul. You know he's going to be having a kid any minute now. <laughs> any minute. Then he'll be a great-grandfather. <laughs> He's like 19 years old, and, and he's got those looks. Oh, my gosh. He's in trouble. <laughs> he is as pretty as Paul was as a Beatle, you know. Uh, he can stand in for Paul in some of these music videos without an AI, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, very good. That's, that is our look at mostly about the fathers and father figures of the Beatles. Yeah, it was a good chat. I'm glad we had this time together. <laughs> well, you'll be back sometime in July. We'll figure out when. We'll work out a date. I'll be back, folks. All right. Next week, Marv will be with us. Good old Marv. Always like to hear Marv. And the first of the two June Toppermosts are out. The second will be out uh, probably not this week, but hopefully by the end of the month. I'll have to tune into that. It's on my playlist at 
That's why you're talking about Andy Williams. That's right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Be safe, folks. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. One thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned out nice again.